Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hi, people. This is DJ. This is Ish. And this is Season 3 of Better Let Me Tell, tell You. you. today it's not friday it's not friday but you know every once in a while we like to give our listeners a little treat so this is a bonus episode it is a bonus episode happy hispanic heritage month everyone. that's exactly why it's a bonus episode hispanic heritage month has just begun so let's have some hispanic heritage fyis if you will Ooh, some fleas <laughs> so so well you know we think it's important obviously because we're kind of Hispanic. It's a little bit, yeah. Um, a Hispanic-based podcast. And that maybe, just maybe, we could give you some little tidbits on Hispanic Heritage Month. Ooh, I like this. So, what I think is really interesting about Hispanic Heritage Month, that, you know, like, for example, Black History Month is in the whole month of February, because right. we're always atravesado. <laughs> Hispanic Heritage <laughs> Month runs from Janu- from <laughs> September 15th through October 15th. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> we have to be in fall and like late, like late fall, right, like Halloween right. practically. Casi verano. Y siempre metido en el medio. Uh-huh, exactly. You know? That's just... um, actually, you know what's really interesting, which probably a lot of people don't know. Do you know why? Because Hispanic Heritage Month was originally, um, it started September 15th through mm-hmm. the rest of the month. So they kind of shafted us. Oh, so shafted we only got us. 15 days. We only got half a month. Hell you know? no. And it was signed in by the Lyndon Johnson administration. Oh wow! But do you know why it was middle, like mid September? Why? Because look at this, how interesting. Okay. Um, September fifteenth was chosen as a starting point because five Hispanic countries have 
an uh, independence in September. Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua. Oh, wow. And also, Mexico, Chile, and Belize celebrate their independence September 16th, 18th, and 21. I didn't know So that. look at all these like Latin American countries that have their independence. And okay, so there was a reason for September. There was a rhyme and okay, reason. Okay, right, okay. But still, they could have done the whole month of September. Right? Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Fair but enough. I love it. Like, I love it. It's that, random. It's, it's, it's like the only... So so it's not yeah, because really like, Pride Month is all of June. Everything is always the full a month. month. That's right. why they call it Blank Month. But we are blank. <laughs> well, no, festival. It's, it's it's National Hispanic Heritage Festival. Festival? No, we're month. Right, but you can't but it's say not month a month because it's right. two months. No, I know, I know. It's well, it's thirty days equals a month. Yeah, <laughs> you know who extended it to a full month? Who? Reagan. Regan. Yeah, of course. You know, the savior of all Cubans. Oh, was it when he was down here at Tropical Park on his horses? <laughs> yeah, I love how so much of like my family and other families that I know love Ronald Reagan. Love. Because Ronald Reagan is like the, a patron saint. I actually and, know somebody who's named Ronald after Ronald Reagan. I know someone too. But not uh, because of the presidency, but because of when he was an actor. Oh. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. Is this person... 70? No, no, he's a little bit older than us, but he was born, I think he was born in Cuba. So this was like, he was born like before Reagan was president. And so... And his parents really liked those... His grandparents. Ronald Reagan His grandparents liked the Ronald Reagan movies. Even that popular, but... What can I tell you? Anyway. But you know what I was going to say? I just think it's interesting that, you know, like my parents, for example came here during the Jimmy Carter administration. But somehow when you hear them talking, they're like, oh, we're here because of Reagan. I'm like, no, you're not. You're here because of Jimmy Carter. Like, you came during the Jimmy Carter administration. You can thank Peanuts. <laughs> like, and Georgia. Georgia. <laughs> okay, totally off from aesthetics heritage month. You know that I can never... Like that saying, the lights go off in Georgia. Without Dixie Carter. Without going, and that's Marjorie. So you know, and your children's <laughs> children, children know. know, was the night the lights went, went out, out in Georgia. <laughs> if you don't know that reference, that is a reference to Julia Sugarbaker yep. from Designing Women that she gave this whole monologue about Delta Burke. So it was, it's, it's wonderful. wonderful. But anyway, because it's Hispanic Heritage Month and... Julia Sugarbaker is from the South. Yeah. Dixie no, Carter was not. No, 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 no her, not. Her Hispanicness, no. No. But, <laughs> not traditionally Latina. I'm trying to see how can I make the, how can I turn her into his. Well, no. she's, well, she's from the South and we live in South Florida and South Florida is where there are a lot of Hispanics. There we go. Yes. There we go. <laughs> so, um, so we thought it would be nice to, um, because it's Hispanic Heritage Month, to, give you an interview that we actually found so interesting that you know a lot of times when we have guests we have to edit interviews just for time Uh, we have to edit interviews and kind of you know make them a little bit more concise but the guests that we have for this special episode we thought his stories were so interesting and it was such a good conversation that we thought hey let's just have a bonus episode yeah so it's bonus episode we have dr victor triay uh, the author of The Mariel Boatlift, A Cuban-American Journey. And this is also the 40th anniversary of The Mariel Boatlift. And if you are Cuban or Cuban-American, you definitely know somebody, even though you may not realize it, who came in The Mariel Boatlift. You definitely know someone, pero quien no conoce un Marielita? Bueno, pero there's people who know, but they don't know that they know someone. 
pero, I don't know, Marielitas, like, people que son Marielita are no, like, actually, no, I'm thinking, in, I'm thinking with think, a, a right. 1980s, 1990s Right, that's mentality. what I'm saying, that's what I'm saying. Porque ya la Marielita has, like, kind of worn off. Right, la Marielita gave way to la Vacera, and then, you know, that gave la, way to... The Guantanamo. Uh-huh, exactly. To that, you know, Juancero, that That's one. what I'm saying, right. you know. But it was a really interesting conversation, you know, he, he talked to us a lot about the history of how we basically arrived at the Mariel boat lift and what it meant for Miami as as a city, you know, once this influx came in and, and all of the effects that it had. And even to this day, again, 40 years later, you know, you're, you're still seeing the remnants of the Mariel boat lift in South Florida. Que más jamón que jamón. You didn't get that. I did not get that. That's from Scarface. Oh, <laughs> Speaking seen... of Marielitas. Speaking of, yeah, exactly. You haven't seen Scarface? I've never seen Scarface. Wait, how can you have not seen Scarface? <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before we get to the interview. I've known you for 30 <laughs> years. You are Cuban from Miami. You are arguably more Cuban than I am. Yep. And you have not seen Scarface. No. Why have you not seen Scarface? I don't know. I just haven't gotten around to it. No, because I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm not one of these people that's enamored with Scarface right, 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 and Tony right. Montana. Right. But just from a cinematic point of view, it's, it's, it's a just very a movie you watch, right? Important, like it, it's, famous it movie. Is, yeah, yeah, but no, I just haven't gotten around to it. <laughs> oh, okay. Not even during the coronavirus, where you're stuck at home, you know? No, instead I binge, you know, three seasons of It's a Living, right? But not Scarface. <laughs> but not Scarface. So. When I say fly, peli can fly, that means... So I know that that's from Scarface, but it doesn't mean anything to me. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, the, without further ado... Yeah. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> here is our interview about the Mariel Boatlift. Well, welcome back, listeners. Uh, as we mentioned, we have with us today Dr. Victor Triay, who is the author of The Mariel Boatlift, A Cuban-American Journey, which is actually in 2020 is the 40th anniversary of the Mariel Boatlift. So as you know, it's a very important part of our Cuban-American history, and we're very, very you know honored to have him on our show. Welcome. All right, doctor. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's a uh... Very nice to be on with you know a couple people from Westchester originally. That's right. We get into that too, and uh, I'm a I'm a big Westchester person. Um, yes. I still consider it home, so I I feel like I'm among family. All of that is to say, you definitely got some bona fides with knowing Miami, particularly during yes. the time frame of the Mariel boat lift. So, what is it about? I mean, I, I guess you know you grew up during that time time period i mean mm-hmm. i know we were we were a little bit on the younger side of it so i don't necessarily remember it but we do have friends who came in the mariel mm-hmm. what is that prompted you to say you know this is this is a story that that needs to be told well you know i i started focusing on cuban exile history in general mm-hmm. with mariel and, and, and again i grew up my parents left in the first wave in 1960 and so most of the people i grew up around were people from that first wave and so my my first attractions historically of course were Operation Pedro Pan and I've done quite a bit of work with Bay of Pigs Invasion. I have a book, I have a novel and I also carried out I think what's the largest oral history on the Bay of Pigs in the world uh, through FIU. Mariel in particular I think it was that's a little bit outside of my experience and, and uh, my family's but in 1988, two things in the in this I went to the University of Florida finishing my bachelor's. In in the summer of '88, I decided to pick four courses to graduate, 
I took the four courses. I sat in a biology class. I didn't understand the thing. But so I took the final. I came home and I failed the course. Oh, so, I had to, so I had to move back to Gainesville. I didn't, but anyway, so I, had, so I had to move back to Gainesville. Uh, there were a few people I knew. One friend of mine um, was, was, was close to a group of people, uh, all from Miami, of course. And then through that group, I actually met my wife. And But a group of us went to Crescent Beach for the weekend. And I found myself in the apartment we had rented, just the two of us. Of course, I really didn't know her. And we started talking. And it turned out she came on the Mario Boatlift. And, of course, by then I was kind of into the Cuba thing, right? And, and as you know, it, it was for a lot of people, you know, kind of a stigma for a while if you came on yeah, Marielle and whatnot. Sure. You know, but I didn't have that because I had studied it enough. I had traveled a lot in the world. To me at that moment, I was into the Cuba thing. I just read Violatis' book, Against All Hope. And to me, it was fascinating. And I, like, grilled her. I, I interrogated her. I interviewed her. I wanted to know every detail of it. And it just it absolutely fascinated me. Also, and, and I and in the first part of the book, I talk about the 79-80 academic year. I was in eighth grade, and that's the year Marielle happened. And, and of course, Marielle was preceded by the Peruvian embassy crisis, where 10,865 people in Havana went into the embassy, and they were there for days. And what that prompted in Miami were, were de demonstrations and protests, and the, the Cuban activists took over the, the, the section of Southwest 27th Avenue from say about 8th Street to about 6th Street. And the bus, and I took the uh, uh, public bus every day with a whole group of guys from um, uh, from the school, and it went past these demonstrations every day. Now, mind you, I was 13, so I'd never seen anything like this. I was like so impressed with all these people and they're on hunger strikes and the flags and, and you're just driving by. I didn't even know what was going on. I mean, I really didn't understand. I was 13 years old. And then, I mean, it was just incredible. And then a few days later, I remember, I was with my mom. We were on our way to go pay a carpenter. That had, and he lived in the neighborhood just east of the Palmetto Expressway. And there's all these people getting their boats ready in their yard, right? You know, I mean, there's out there and all these and all these books. And my mom points it out, and she says, wow, look at all the people getting their boats ready. It was like a Tuesday afternoon or something. And I said, why are they getting their boats ready? You thought and it was a long like, weekend or something. Like, I, uh, Well, you know what? And she looks at me like, what, are you stupid? And she tells me, bum, bum, ooh, they're going to Cuba. I'm like, for me until that moment, you have to understand my entire childhood, people my age, nobody came from Cuba anymore, right? It was the planet Krypton uh, our parents got on the, on the last spaceship got out and the whole thing blew up, right? It just didn't exist. And you didn't have what you see in Miami after 1980 and especially the uh, 90s, where there's kind of a constant flow of people coming from Cuba. I didn't know And that. you'll always meet some. And, but, but it was, you know, Cuba was such a distant, you didn't talk to people in Cuba because they made it impossible. You didn't communicate with Cuba, right? There was no internet. It may as well have been 10,000 miles away. And then all of a sudden, my God, it's close enough to go on a boat if you watch. Okay, old episodes of what's everyone's favorite show in Miami, Que Pasa <laughs> USA. Okay, watch the shows and the issues between the parents and the kids, right, were very typical of the 1970s, very different from now. The whole thing with Cuba and being an American and this, that, and the other. Keep in mind that growing up, the, the, the number of so-called Americans, right, you right, know, right. in quotation marks, what we called Americans at the time, was much higher. You know, we were a minority. We were a large minority, but we were a minority. Uh, and so everything changed after that. And then, you know, I think those years, if you look at Miami in 1977, 1978, 
and you look at Miami in 1984, it's two completely different cities. Not just because of Marielle, but you had also the um, uh, Nicaraguans coming in and you had other groups coming in. And, and there was a big change somewhere along there. Yeah, I, I definitely want to touch on something that you said, which is that before Mariel, it's, you know, you were like, people just didn't come from Cuba. It wasn't, right. you know, the norm, which I think is interesting because for us growing up, you know, we grew up mm -hmm. post Mariel. It's just right. always seemed like people just always came from Cuba, whether it be for a visit yeah. or, or to stay. And, yeah. you know, you also mentioned that there was the the influx then of other countries as well. Do, do you right. think that the Mariel kind of set that bar of like, well, now that Cuba is, 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 has people coming constantly, other countries kind of took took that? Well, I, I want to piggyback on his question as well. I guess that's a part of, of history that a lot of people don't talk about. The first wave of immigration of Cuba right. and then in Mariel. So it's probably like 15 years there right, or so. Right, right. Well, Mariel yeah. will be the third wave. Yeah, the, the third, three, right. So, so, so that time, because that's a time that a lot of people don't mention. Yeah, I, I myself don't, don't really yeah. know from that initial wave to right. Mariel. So, right. who was coming at that time? In in the first wave, you had Cubans of all backgrounds. It was disproportionately middle class and up, right? Because they were the ones most affected. What what ended that first wave was the missile crisis in 1962. Because it was very odd. Cuba and the United States broke diplomatic relations in January 1961. You have the Bay of Pigs invasion in April 1961, three, three months, two weeks later. But in spite of the fact that the embassies were closed, you still had regular commercial flights between Cuba and the United States. So the first wave continued. Um, and, and they didn't shut it down until October 1962. When that happened was because of a very big deal, the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? right the world right. almost ended. And then they didn't open up anything again until the fall of 1965. Castro came out in, in, in September and said that starting on, on a certain day in October, that Cubans could, in exile, I don't think he used the term exile, mm -hmm. would be allowed to come to Cuba to pick up their relatives on a boat. And so he opened a port, and, they had, and there was a boat lift um, and that, that brought about 5,000 people. It was very civilized compared to Marielle. Yeah, that's actually how my mother, uh, my mother and her parents and, and her brother came during that, during that initial. Camarioca. 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 You know, they had little barracks and they had playgrounds for the kids. I mean, and after about 5,000 people, the U.S. and Cuba struck a deal through the Swiss that that would be replaced with the Freedom Flight. So, yeah, so it was, it was a huge, huge deal. I mean, keep in mind that the Cuban exile community grew by like 20%. In six months, 500,000 Cubans in exile, and over 100,000 people came through Marielle, right? So most of the people who came from Marielle, I know this, you know, not everybody does. You didn't notice them because they blended in, they went with their families, uh, they, they adapted. What you saw were a lot of uh, young males who were not married, who were the ones on the street and the ones getting into trouble which was a minority of them, but nevertheless, that became the image of the Mario refugee for everybody, right? And the ones who went to prison, etc. But it, it was an intense moment that you had all the cocaine cowboy era going on. You had the riots in, in 1980 going on. It was like a perfect mm -hmm. storm uh, of just everything happening in, it in was South just, Florida. It was, yeah, but I mean, when you're 13, 14 years old, it just, you know, it, it just seems normal. If I was a parent, I would have been, if I were an adult, I would have been 
maybe a little bit more shocked with the changes, but as a kid, you just go with the flow. You don't know the difference. Right. Uh, but, but it did change South Florida a lot. It's interesting in terms of the image of, of the Marielitos. My parents came from Cuba in March of 1980. Wow. In, in March of 1980. And they came, my grandmother had immigrated in the early 60s and right. brought all her kids. Like, wow. Like, my parents came with, I think, uh, they have their passports. Like, they came completely illegal um, right. in March of 1980. Wow. So, let me, ask, let me ask you a question then. Did, 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 they have family from Miami go visit them in Cuba in 1978-79 or no? Yes, my grandmother went in 19 my grandmother went in 1979 um, because I was actually born in Cuba and it I have video footage of of me when my grandmother went and yeah she, uh, uh, wow that's a great question because she did go <laughs> in 1979. You know one of the things that helped prompt the overwhelming desire to leave. I mean keep in mind that. If you lived, if you had relatives in exile, it was almost impossible to talk. Uh, you had to put through a call and sit by your phone sometimes yeah. three or four days or more, yeah. and you didn't want to leave because when the operator called you, right, you picked up. Cuban state security would listen to all the conversations, so you didn't talk politics. You didn't say anything that would be controversial. Any letter you sent was open, yep. and so the Cuban government, having this monopoly on information, would tell the people in Cuba, all those people who left, those people are suffering, those people are marginalized. And there was no alternative narrative. And if you spoke to your family, yeah, you were marked. A lot of people didn't, and those who did were very careful. When Castro allowed the visits to happen, and all these people come back, many of whom had left on the freedom flights in the early 70s, not that long before, and they're coming back with these pictures and these stories in their house and their and you know the guy who owns a gas station in Hialeah right goes back and it wasn't just their family that was impressed the whole block would come the whole oh, building would come. people in Cuba at that moment had never met anyone from the outside right it was North Korea during those years right and all of a sudden this guy from Hialeah is the richest person they've ever met he lives better than the communist party bosses in the neighborhood and then that same year Cuba's economy crashed. It was always crashing. It just yeah. crashed more. With, uh, the, 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 there was a flight on the uh, tobacco crop. The price of sugar had gone down. And, and then when the families would visit, they're like, listen, there are talks. The reason you're here is because there's talk and there might be another opening. Ask your family if they had this conversation. If there's an opening, come get me. Or if there's an opening, do you want us to send for you? We don't know how the opening is going to come, where it's going to come, but we feel like it's going to come. Was a, it was in the rumor bill. Right. And then it was, yes, if there's any way. And, you know, people started trying through Spain and trying through other means. Um, it, it, it wasn't easy. And in Cuba at the time, if you just put in, expressed any desire to leave Cuba, that's it. You were marked. And yeah. being marked in Cuba was not a good thing. My parents, I mean, these are the stories I grew up with. My parents, right in the late 70s, they had applied and they were going to give them some type of subsidized housing, something right. to that nature, that right before they left, this was either in 79, well, they left in March of 80, so that was at the beginning of the year. So probably in 79, um, when there was already talks of it, that, that I guess they knew that they were leaving or were going to try to leave, right? right? They took away their, um, that oh, yeah. apartment yeah. or what, that, oh, they yeah. were going to give it to them. Yeah, and, and, and if they would have had their their salida, so to speak, in, in May, 
they would have told them, you have to go through Mariel, because there were a lot of people who had visas and whatnot, including political prisoners who other countries had agreed to take them, that the Cuban government said, no, you got to go through Mariel. So as, as an expert in this, and knowing, you know, not only obviously the, the Mariel boat lift, but, you know, the, how Cuba worked and all that, what would you say, because Fidel Castro, you know, and the Castro regime was, it seemed like this system that, you know, they were not going to falter, period. Right. What do you think happened in his mindset or in the government's mindset that they're like, fine, whoever wants to leave, leave? You know what? Whenever there's been pressure, one of his escape routes is to open that immigration house. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. He did it in the mid-60s. And, I mean, in the mid-60s, they were already with ration books and the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And and pressure was building, and he let it happen. In 1977, 78, Cuba actually had a year where they didn't crash as much as they normally did, right? And so they felt good. Castro had also recently been appointed the, the, the chairman of the non-aligned movement, which was very prestigious for him. Uh, his interventions in Africa at that moment were going well. Um, the, the Sandinistas were about to take over Nicaragua. Maurice Bishop um, had, had uh, taken over Grenada. He was feeling pretty good. And he also had become very dependent on the Soviet. And there was agitation. Most people don't realize the amount of agitation there was in Cuba. There was sabotage. There, were, there was anti-government propaganda. Uh, and mostly people were doing whatever they could to leave now that they were more familiar with what was out there just 90 miles away. Of course, in Cuba, you can't own a boat. And you can't own a boat because you leave it to get the hell out of there, right? And so people started stealing boats. Uh, people started hijacking some boats as well. And people also started hopping the fence at embassies, at Latin American embassies, and asking for asylum. Castro was getting furious, especially at the Peruvians. So finally, the, the, this this guy, Hector San Justiz, and a group of friends, um, he drove a bus, and they commandeered a bus, and they drove the bus right through one of the gates at the Peruvian embassy. And Castro was furious. And and, 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 and and the Peruvians, since the bus was far enough on embassy grounds, the Peruvians gave them asylum. 
Castro Lost him, just blew sure. a gasket. <laughs> he blew a gasket. And he said, okay, here's what's going to happen. We're going to teach the Peruvians a lesson. We're going to remove the guard from the embassy. And we're going to go on the radio and say and say it. And you're going to see – and at that moment, there were already asylum seekers in the embassy, only a handful that the Peruvians could barely feed. They announced it on the radio. Within a couple of days, there were 10,865 people on the embassy grounds, right? It was complete chaos. And hundreds of thousands on the roads making their way to Havana to, to, to join in. Police officers who just pulled their car over, hopped the fence. You had Communist Party members jumping in. You had little everything you can imagine. And that was an embarrassment for Castro, a massive embarrassment for Castro, because then the media got in on it, starts focusing on this. And, you know, at, at that moment, outside the Cuban exile community, a lot of people thought, you know, b- believed the Cuban propaganda, that Cuba was this wonderful place to live, and, and it was a model, etc. It was an embarrassment. And so Castro has to get out of it. And he starts giving the people safe conduct passes. Listen, we're going to let you leave the country, but you need a visa. Go home. Here's your safe conduct pass, et cetera. And then someone gave him the idea, an exile who was part of the dialogue group that was talking to the Cuban government. That was very controversial in, in Miami at the time. But he said, listen, I have the solution. This is what you do. Tell We can tell the people in Miami that they could come to Cuba mm-hmm. and take away. Now, mind you, Miami. Like I told you, it was all mobilized. People were in the street. <laughs> they were, were raising money. People were on hunger strikes. So Miami was very aware and, and had taken up the cause, and they called them the Havana 10,000. And so this guy tells Castro, why don't we get the people in Miami to come on boats and take away these Peruvian embassy exiles, most of whom were already home by then, with the provision that they could also take out their relatives, right? So take some of the, 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 the embassy asylees, and you can take some of your relatives. And that was the impression of what was going to happen. This guy comes back to Miami. Cuban state security. I, I, I'm not going to say his name. Read the book. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the book. Certain Cuban state security agent, whose name I also won't mention. It's in the, I don't know if I put it in the book. He, he later, he, he's kind of controversial because he was part of the um, uh, upper class country club set in Cuba who, who became a communist and was later destroyed by Castro. But anyway, he's in Miami. He goes to visit this guy and says, the port is going to be Mariel. Go ahead. He goes on WQBA oh. and starts saying, you can go get your relatives in Cuba. And then everything in Miami exploded. You had so many people separated from their relatives, especially people who came on the Freedom Flights who left more recently. Everybody went crazy looking for boats. Either they bought boats or and some, some people bought boats. They didn't even know how to, how to pilot boats. Uh, you had all these captains on the Miami River in the Keys who became all of a sudden captains for hire. And you can give them a list of your relatives and they go to Cuba and bring them out. But that's, you know, but, but Castro decided, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to use this just to get rid of people, right? To thin out the population a little bit. The people who are unhappy, the people who might rebel against me, etc. I can get rid of them. Not true that he opened all the prisons and everybody who came was a prisoner. A small percentage were prisoners and, you know, people from the psychiatric hospitals, etc. Uh, and it certainly wasn't your average Mario refugee. Although that's the impression, but that's simply not true. And but anybody, then he turned around and Cuba said, anybody who wants to leave can leave, right? And of course, that again, like I said, would would reduce the population. It, it would get rid of the people who might cause them trouble. Right. And it was also a way to rally the population because now you have a scapegoat, right? And remember, communism functions on hate, on envy, on resentment, 
on attacks inside of Cuba. Castro was able to turn around and tell the population, these people leaving from Mariel are the reason we are where we are, right? These are the people who are the drag, they're scum, escoria, right? And so they, and not only was that the propaganda, the, the, the committees for the defense of the revolution, teachers, workplaces, organized people to go root, find where these people were, most of them were still in their homes, and, and, and launch these acts of disdain, and these people went through hell from the time they said they were going to leave Cuba until the time, until the time they were in the United States. They were put through hell, not just because of that, but the processing centers, the concentration camps, they would deliberately overload the boat so they would sink. Now, most of the time, if the government gets involved in maritime issues, right, there are pleasure crafts, and I'm a government official, I'm usually in a normal country, you would say, listen, you got five people on that boat, you have to have five life rafts, and you right. got, no, no, this was, this was how many people does that boat? All 20, put 50 on there. So that they all drown. My wife's boat sank. She had to be rescued by the U.S. Coast Guard. Carly in letters. some cases, yeah, and in some cases, part of the family left, part of the family stayed. And in some cases, they said, oh, no, it's too late. These three have to leave. They're not allowed to stay. These three have to, you know, stay behind. And so they they, they, they deliberately uh, separated families. They beat people. They dragged them through the street, right? The moms, right? The mm -hmm. la, la turba, right? And it was just, it was, it was, it was a nightmare. So he used it also to rally revolutionaries, even though most of the people taking part in those acts weren't revolutionaries. You were at school or you were at work and your boss or your teacher said, vamos, let's go, and, and you have to go. And where are we going? I don't know. And all of a sudden you're in an acto repudio. I know people who were leaving in Mariel and knew they were leaving in Mariel, but the local authorities didn't yet. And they were taken by their workplace or by their school to go scream at someone who's leaving through Mariel. And of course you couldn't say anything because you were so terrified. You know, you just went and kind of just pretended or whatever and just hoping because if you say, I'm not going, well, why not? But yeah, it was it was to thin out the population. It was to rally revolutionaries. It was to, to, to get rid of people who might be a problem to him later and to relieve pressure because, you know, there, 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 there weren't enough jobs or housing or anything else. Wait a minute, 1% of the population is, is doesn't sound like much, but it's significant. No, yeah. absolutely. Go ahead, I don't know, DJ. You look like you had something well, <laughs> ready to go. Yeah. I, had more, I had more of a general question because the problem with talking about Cuba is that while firsthand accounts are great, you know, it, it, you know, it's always biased and skewed to a certain point because we're human, right? So it's not everybody. Every, every day that you talk to somebody who is um, well as well versed about these matters as you are, Doctor, and you know, something that when people talk about Cuba and talk about Castro, and this is always, you know, this is more of a general question: how he was able to retain control of such a small island mm -hmm. with at times the world against him. You know, that's something that I've always, and so many people have always been curious, like how the hell did he pull that off? Do you mean internationally or domestically? Because, oh, well, <laughs> I mean, I mean, internationally, I mean, people were against him in, in theory, but nobody did anything, right? I mean, the United States essentially helped him into power. The, the simple deceptive narrative is, is that the United States was behind Batista and Castro overthrew Batista in the United States. That's not true, right? Um, a lot of people were against him in theory, but nobody really did anything. I mean, the, the one chance the United States had to do something was April 17, 1961. And, you know, at the Bay of Pigs, and the United States backed out and didn't do what, what it needed to do. And after that, Cuba was pretty much left alone internationally. Keep in mind, too, that 
Castro's propaganda was very, very, very effective. He presented himself as liberating himself from colonial rule of the United States. Now, that was very popular at the time because that was a time where many peoples in Africa and Asia were going through decolonization because they had been European colonies. And so that became kind of a cause celeb. And, and Castro could cast himself as that, becoming independent, not of a has-been European power, like France or Britain, and I mean, those, those countries now had, had fallen tremendously, but from the current superpower, right? And of course, the Europeans liked that too, because they didn't like being second fiddle, and, and they didn't like, and they liked that the United States was being criticized, which was all false, you know, the, the whole narrative, but he was able to pull it off. And, and so he actually had admirers and still has admirers in different parts of the world uh, because of that very effective uh, propaganda. And when they say, oh, he survived so many U.S. presidents, none of those U.S. presidents tried to get rid of him. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, they had the embargo, but the embargo is nothing. I mean, I mean, you know, the embargo basically was there to deny him hard currency that would limit his ability to sponsor revolutions in Latin America. And in that, it worked, right? Not necessarily just to get rid of him. But outside of that, I mean, there were no, I mean, you know, in Cuba, they're always mobilizing people. Oh, the Americans are going to invade the Americans. The Americans never invaded. <laughs> they never did anything. You know, domestically, if you look at the regime from day one, and, and, and in this space, there, there, there's just not enough time to go through it all. But from day one, everything was about staying in power. Everything they do, every move they make, right, goes in the direction of staying in power, right? It's it's a state of control and a state of terror. Cuba in the 1960s, 70s had, the, I think, one of the highest per capita political prison populations in the world. But you know what? The average Cuban didn't even know they were political prisoners, and that took me a long time to wrap my brain around. In exile, they knew they were political prisoners, but in Cuba, when they started to release political prisoners, and there are people who tell you, when we would see the political prisoners, we didn't even know they were political prisoners. So they were, that's they, how they, caught off they had the just, people were. They had just gone Sorry? to jail. They had just basically been put in jail, and they had no no contact. Right, they just disappeared. Right, the, the population. You know, a lot of people didn't even know of them. So you you are controlled. You're you're brainwashed from day one to fear. You are cut off from the rest of the world. Right, the whole world is Cuba. You will know almost nothing of the outside world, and you, they create a mindset where if you go against the grain, if you dissent, right, and you're marked, your life is over. There's nothing you can do. There's no ACLU to go to. There's nothing. I, I interviewed this young couple in Miami maybe 20 years ago, and they'd been here at the time for maybe five years. And they were married. They're, you know, married around the time that they came here. But they were boyfriend and girlfriend in Cuba. And they were planning on getting married, and they were in love, and they were very close, and the, you know they were you know already engaged, and they were still in school. You know they got married very young then, and they, and they're sitting on a park bench, okay. These two lovebirds, right, who are who are exposing their souls to each other, right. His notebook fell, and out of that notebook popped a holy card, and he says, "I froze." He says, I've never been more scared in all my life than when she saw the holy card. Oh, wow. Well, why? And he's like, because I didn't know how she would react to that. If she would run and tell the local authorities and I would go to prison or, I, or they, they, she'd say something at school and I'd get kicked out of school. 
think about that. And and it, it's a place where even the kids are told to spy on their parents as well, or it was more so, but you know, maybe yeah. than now. But you know, you know, the parents, the teachers would interview the kids. So, what does your father say about the revolution? What did your father say about Fidel? What are you going to do? Again, it's a state of constant terror. That's how they stayed in power. They also have one of the most elaborate systems of state security domestically, which I've described, and internationally. I mean, right up there with the Gestapo, the KGB, and the amount of resources they pour into that is tremendous. Remember, when the Brothers to the Rescue plane went down was because of someone who'd infiltrated, right, the spy. The day after it went down, he was on TV in Cuba. The head of, what's the name of the agency, The, the, the Defense Analyst Institute or something like that, which provides all the intelligence okay, for the U.S. military. The head of the Cuba desk with the highest level of clearance the United States government, I would imagine, gives, was a Castro spy. She's in prison right now. Ana Belen Montes, look it up, right? right? And, and so they are, everything they have, everything they do is with that one objective of staying in power. Yeah. And everything at- you're saying um, really hits close to home. Um, my, um, my family, my dad's family, they're counter-revolutionists. So mm-hmm. everything you're saying is what my dad has always told me. Mm-hmm. And like my father, like so many people, my father's uh, birthday was this week. He turned 77. And, you know, I often tell him, I'm like, you have now lived more years here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. than you did in Cuba. And despite the fact that, you know, my father, like most people that have immigrated to the U.S., you know, they've had a very good life here and their kids have done great things, but he still has this sort of trauma and this like kind of hatred inside that just will never go away. And and with everything you're saying, it's like, it's like point by point, like yeah. what I, the rhetoric that I've grown up, you know, grew up on. Mm-hmm. To add a little, you know, antidote of that, my parents hate sunflowers and they i it's really odd they hate sunflowers the reason why they don't like sunflowers and they were from a very small town in matanza called caloroja the reason why they hate sunflowers and most people from caloroja hate sunflowers is because during the time of the revolution or right after the revolution there were like i don't know a, a handful of kids, like probably teenagers or so, who were executed, um, and they were executed in front of the town because they had cut sunflowers. Yeah, there you go. And and till this day, till this day, it's like you'll hear my mom say, like, yo no puedo ver un girasol. Like, I can't. Right. Yeah. And, and it's like little mundane stuff like that, right. that yeah, yeah. sunflowers, yeah. I've that met, completely traumatizes people. Yeah, I've met long-term political prisoners who won't eat pasta because for years that's all they were given, really bad, boiled Awesome. But to, to, to expand on your earlier question, growing up, again, we knew very little about Cuba. Now I know a lot about Cuba. Um, you know, even, you know, you mentioned it down in Matanzas. I, I now have a, I, I know what Matanzas is. I know what those kind of, even though I've never been there, but I've studied it enough to know. When I was growing up, you know, Cuban geography was like, so are you from north of Coralway or south of Coralway? Right? <laughs> and, uh, oh, yeah, no, no, they live behind the shopping center. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a, yeah. But when I went to college, et cetera, when, you, when I first saw people who were pro-Castro and pro-Cuba, me and my friends, 
it was like, oh, you know, we, you know, we get mad. It's like, oh, you know, they killed my uncle or something like that. But we really didn't know the details, right? We knew it was bad. But I can tell you, since I started studying it, and I've gotten into it, and I've gotten deep into it, it's even worse than I thought. I can tell you that the parents and grandparents weren't exaggerating. You probably don't. I mean, we didn't know 10% of the story, right? And 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 so it, it, it is a lot worse, and it was a lot. So yeah, it, it, and 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 when you look at Marielle, not just the boat lift. You know, you have to understand conditions in Cuba at the time, which I call the North Korea years, right? Like 1965 to 1980. You know, you realize, my goodness, this is even worse than I than I imagined right. uh, it was, and the sort of things that that they did to people and continue to do to people. You know, it, it, it's just very frustrating. Not, well, maybe frustrating is the wrong word. You know, when you still see people, you know, who praise it and legitimize mm -hmm. it and all of that. And I try to be objective in everything I do and everything I write. But but you can't, it, you, it's just so hard to justify when you know what the truth is and you realize, you know, you know again, the, the, the story of the holy card. How, how strange is that? You know, a, a country that 20 years earlier had complete freedom of religion, even though the governments were often bad. Right? So all of a sudden, everybody's got to be in lockstep with what this guy says. It's just this ego trip that this person had. And we're talking about this today, 60 years later, and, and all the horrible things. And, and, you, and, you know, again, the more you study it, the more you realize, my goodness, if you approach it honestly, because if you approach it dishonestly, then you can just ignore certain things and, and get, and they know how to create enthusiasm. They know how to create spirit, right? Especially if you don't have to live it, right? <laughs> if you're from the outside, right. there's a certain culture of the revolution, which, which they can make to appear very emotionally appealing. Very glamorous almost. And, very... Yeah. And, 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 and romantic and this, that, that and the is. other, but everybody I know who's lived in communism, you know, always says the same thing. Yeah, go live there for a year as a citizen and then see if you still feel the same way. I mean, there's a reason why communism has murdered over 100 million people since 1917. That's not an accident. Yeah. Right. So as we as we start to kind of wind down, I, I would like to actually ask you a question, kind of bring it back to, to the Maria. You know, again, this is the 40th anniversary of the Maria boat lift. What would you say is its legacy? Uh, you know, looking looking back now, forty years on, because a lot has changed. I mean, we're to your point. You know, we're in a different world. Like whereas before, it was you know, well, whatever Cuba said is what people kind of swallowed. You know, on their end as the truth, and yeah. now we all know about it. And since then, mm -hmm. we have a more steady influx of people coming from Cuba, as opposed to you know that that period in between. What would you say right. is has has resulted since? Or like I said, the legacy. Yeah. Well, I I, I think it it marks. A lot of things. I think it was the beginning of the end of the propaganda show. Even though many people continue to this day to believe that you know Cuba is a wonderful place, mm -hmm. that has receded, and I think it starts there. It really shows the resilience of Cubans who leave because most of these people who came to Marielle have been successful. I mean, most of them adapted. Some of them became truck drivers. Some of them became lawyers. Some of them became business owners. Some of them became you know, TV personalities, right? And they got here not only with nothing physically, but also having spent all those years in Cuba. And yet they were able to get here and adapt 
and go forward. It, it also marks, I think, more or less the beginning of the end of the policy of, you know, Cuba, you know, any Cuban anywhere, anytime can come into the United States if he makes it. Um, it, it was still the Cold War, right? It was still, you know, victims of communism type thing. So they couldn't stop it. You know, at, at the first White House level meeting, which Vice President Walter Mondale chaired, you know, one of the issues was, listen, you know, Vietnam fell five years ago. And we've been criticizing Southeast Asian, Southeast Asian nations for not allowing in Vietnamese refugees as victims of communism. We can't turn around and do that now, right? And 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 there, there had also been that momentum from, from previous waves. By the night, and, and then you didn't have that much immigration after Marielle, but then you had the Balseros. Right. And already with the Balseros, then you start, and, and also Marielle, keep in mind that unlike the first two waves, the stigma wasn't just one applied socially on the streets of Miami. The federal government also stigmatized it. And the first time Cubans were herded forcibly into refugee camps, not that there weren't camps before. I mean, you know, you had not so much camps, but transit centers before. You know, here you actually had, you know, camps so they weren't allowed to leave in Arkansas, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Um, so, so it was very different already by then, but they were still allowed in. But in the 90s with the Barceros, then you have wet foot, dry foot. So all of a sudden, oh, wait a minute. You know, you know, it's not the way it was before. And then, was it four years ago, three and a half years ago, finally, you know, you know, whatever preference uh, ended. Uh, again, the Cold War was over. 1980, the Cold War was still going on, mm-hmm. right? There, there was still a Soviet Union. There was still a threat, et cetera. So, you know, maybe, you know, and I'm, I'm just thinking on my feet here. That's certainly something... Uh, that, that change. And, but, but I would say it's that, that resilience of the Cuban who's seeking freedom, right. To, to do whatever it takes to find it. I mean, you guys live in Miami. You've seen what people do to get here from Cuba, right? You know, they, 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 they retrofit a truck somehow that makes it float. You know, God and bless they, those people. I mean, geez, oh, God. Louise. <laughs> you know, the, the 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 desperation, the Florida Straits is no picnic, even going across it on a boat, but on a raft. I mean, my goodness, a number of people who, who, who have died there. You know, I mean, you know, some people call the Florida Straits the biggest Cuban cemetery in the world. And nobody's sure how many people have died there. And the things that Cubans have been doing for 60 years to get out and get when they get here, by and large, right, they succeed. You know, just just look at Miami. You know, even someone who gets here with nothing, even with with with, you know, may not be among the educated elite or whatever, and yet they they they've made it. And you look at the Miami there is today, and I know there are groups other than Cubans who help make Miami. Of course there were, right? But but a lot of it was Cuban. And then you look at Havana, right, where the buildings are literally falling. Yeah, they are literally collapsing. Right where where you where nothing works, it looks like like post-war Germany, and there you have the model, right of Cubans enslaved and or you know living under under you know a repressive communist system, and then yeah Miami, which is a whole different thing. It's incredible, and I think Marielle was so big, so overwhelming, and I think everybody gave these people who came almost zero chance of ever adapting in this country, of ever becoming part of this country, because they were so different. They weren't like the Cubans before, because they, they just left communism for, for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And you know what? They did great. And the ones who continue to come, continue to do great. And, and my hope is that someday all these skilled and all these talented people are going to be able to go to Cuba 
and rebuild that country. And I hope you guys are part of it too. Well, that's a perfect way of ending it. I mean, this is a conversation, obviously, that we could have for hours because, again, you know, um, the Cuba subject is so sensitive, and you know, it, but it's very bias. Story. Obviously, is is a thing we all have, and it's it's not every day that we meet somebody like you who is like, <laughs> you know, so well versed. You know, just from a historical a- aspect, you know, that even removing the fact that you're Cuban, you know, just from a historical aspect, we could talk so deeply about this. I I, I would love to have you on again. For oh, like, anytime you guys can call me anytime. <laughs> just, just tell me now. And now I figured out all how to do it. And <laughs> you call me anytime. <laughs> you guys got my number. You know, text me, call me, uh, whatever you want. I'm, I'm always on my cell phone, so I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm not the type that you call and I don't answer. So thank call you. me, and, and I'll be on whenever you guys want. Awesome. Thank you so awesome. much. Well, thank you so much uh, again for giving, you know, for joining us today. And honestly, it's been all right. fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you. And next time we got to talk more about Westchester. Okay, yes. for sure. That'll be the next next topic. <laughs> La patria. <laughs> <laughs>